Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, it's, it is packed today. It's, uh, everyone's back. It's great to see you all back. And welcome to those of you who are visiting. It's great to see you as well. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, I want to begin this morning by having you turn to the passage you were at last week, uh, Colossians chapter 1. You know, last week, if you were here or if you were able to catch it online, Rob did a good job of explaining our need of reconciliation from Colossians 1 and verse 21. It says there, and you, speaking to the believers in Colossae, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body. And the idea there is that, that these alienated and hostile people have been reconciled to God. And this is one of the clearest verses, maybe in all of Scripture, on the depravity of man, what the Bible calls the depravity of man. We are alienated from God. We are separated from God by birth. We are hostile in mind, it says there. We think contrary to God. And that ungodly thinking means that we do evil deeds. Unsaved man is at enmity with God and contrary to God. They are enemies of God, and we ourselves were enemies of God before our reconciliation. And theologically, this doctrine of Scripture is called total depravity. And it's total, not because every man is as bad as he could be, but because the sinfulness of our nature affects every part of us. Our depravity is in our hearts, and therefore, depravity is in our minds, it's in our wills, it affects our actions, it affects and controls really all of the unsaved person. And the unsaved person is in bondage to their sinful desires because they have a sinful heart. And they cannot rescue themselves from this state. There's not some good part of them that's, that's somewhere hidden deep within them that can, can then somehow, that they can rely on that good part that they can then overcome their sin and turn from it to salvation. And so their sin affects the totality of their being. Depravity is also total in this sense. The totality of mankind is sinful. Not only does sin affect the whole person, but it affects every single person that is in this world. There are no people in the world who are born sinless. There are no undepraved people. There are no people in the world who are good. Now, Scripture doesn't deny that People do certain good deeds, even unsaved people do certain good deeds. They take care of their neighbor or they do good things in society. But even the, the so-called good deeds of the unsaved world, they lack the, the Godward focus that God calls good and that God thinks of as good. True good recognizes that God is the highest good. And so true good does everything that, that is good for God and for his glory. And nobody is able to acknowledge God as the highest good apart from divine grace. Well, why is that? 
It's because by nature we are alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now why am I reminding you of this bad news this morning? Why am I telling you this? Why highlight the sinfulness of man? Why highlight the total or, or sometimes maybe better theologically to say the radical depravity of man? Well, today we are in Matthew 5, and and I guess we could turn there, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 10 to 12 as we continue our exposition of this book. And we're in a text then here dealing with persecution. We are in a text dealing with persecution. And persecution really makes no sense unless we understand the doctrine of man. You know, I I, I don't know if you've thought about this before or not, but if you think about it, why did people persecute Jesus Christ? Why would they kill Jesus Christ? Why would anybody want to kill the perfect, holy, sinless Son of God? Now, we know from God's side of the whole thing that, that this was God's plan, that Jesus died to save us from our sins, that Jesus was crucified to fulfill God's plan of salvation so that God could save an innumerable number of people and, and turn them into worshipers. But from the human side of things, from the, from the divine side, we understand it was part of God's plan, but from the human side, why did Jesus die? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans, they weren't trying to accomplish God's plan of salvation. They were working according to their own wicked desires. They were doing the will of their father, the devil, and so they killed Jesus Christ. They were doing evil, even though at the same time, God was accomplishing his good plan. And and just to kind of show you both sides, the human and the divine, I want you to turn with me as we just kind of are introducing this this morning. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We see both again the the human side, the, the wicked, hostile men persecuting Jesus, God's side as well, fulfilling His plan of salvation. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, it says there, this Jesus. And we say, well, which Jesus? Well, if we go back to verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so Jesus of Nazareth was attested by God with mighty works that God did through him. This Jesus, Peter says in this sermon, this Jesus you crucified and killed and you did it by the hands of lawless men, of of sinful men. And yet at the same time, this evil act was according there to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now we see a, a very similar passage in Acts chapter 4. And here the apostles themselves are facing persecution and the, the church gathers together to pray. And we'll, we'll start reading in verse 24. And when they heard it, 
The, they heard about the persecution. They, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now these people, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, that is the Romans and the the Israelites, the Jews, these people, they gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. They were against the Lord's holy servant, Jesus. But what they were doing against the Lord in their wickedness was at the same time, in another way, actually accomplishing exactly what God's hand and His purpose had predestined to take place. Now, I show you that to help you see that that even though God's plan is being accomplished through it, wicked men who are accountable for their sin, they persecuted and crucified the Holy One. And when we think about this, it's not as though Jesus' generation was particularly sinful. Now, now they were sinful. They were the generation that killed the Son of God. But if you think about it, it's not as though they had any different human natures than every other generation that ever lived had. And this is how it has always been. This, This persecution against God, against the Lord, and against His people. In 1 John 3 and verse 11, John says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so we see there that there's this contrast between Cain and Abel. The one was of evil. Cain was of the evil one and he murdered his brother and he murdered him because his own deeds were evil and his brother was righteous. And then John says to the church, the very next verse, 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I remember being at a conference, shepherd's conference, and one of the speakers said, speaking out of John chapter 15, he said, it's Thursday night and the world hates you. And that's how it is right now. It's Sunday morning and brothers and sisters, the world hates you. The world hates you. And we're not to be surprised about this. Jesus said to his unbelieving brothers, John chapter seven, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The sinful world hates God and they hate Jesus Christ and they hate those who are righteous. Righteousness is unbearable to those who love sin because righteousness condemns the unrighteous, especially the kind of righteousness that testifies to the world that its works are evil. 
Now, I want you to turn with me then to John chapter 15, and we'll actually look at that passage that that speaker mentioned. John chapter 15. We'll start there in verse 18. Of course, this is Jesus' final words in the Gospel of John to his disciples. He says to them, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things, all these things, what things? The persecution, all of these persecutions they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The world does not know God and therefore they will persecute us because we have been chosen out of the world. We are different than the world. They are hostile to God, and therefore the more we are conformed to the image of Christ, the more they will hate us. If they persecuted our perfectly righteous Master, and if they found fault with the Holy One, how much more will they find fault with us in whom the the stamp of sin still remains? The world loves its own, but we are not of the world. We have been chosen out of the world. And so we are never going to please the world. The church of Jesus Christ will never please the world on the world's terms. And so let's continue reading then. John 15 verse 22 says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated Jesus Christ without a cause because He was perfectly righteous. There was no cause in Him for them to hate Him. Then Jesus continues, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And so Jesus told us these things in order to keep us from falling away, in order for us to know what to expect in this world. We are not to be surprised by persecution. We know why the world persecutes us. Because they they do not know God and they do not know Jesus Christ. And Jesus, He never shied away 
from telling his disciples the cost of following him. He was always straightforward about the cost of following him. John 10, uh, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus said. Or Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and, and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now I say all this because we need to know that we will likely face persecution as believers in Jesus Christ. And indeed, we already have in, in many forms and various ways, we have already faced persecution. And if we remain faithful, we will face more, especially as our society continues to, to seems to remove all the restraints in these days. There's going to be a day in our generation that we can see coming where people are going to think they're, they're doing the world a favor by persecuting and, and ridding the world of Christian people. And all of this means that we need to know how to handle persecution. We need to know how to think about it. We need to know how to respond to it. Now, I don't know about you and even how you're feeling in this moment, but when, when I first began to see from Scripture the depravity of man, I began to fear what would happen to me if I remained faithful to the Lord in this generation. You know, the, the more I understood the, the depravity of man, the more I began to realize there's just no doubt that I'm going to be persecuted as a follower of Jesus Christ. But the Lord, He doesn't teach us to, to fear persecution. Instead, He teaches actually the exact opposite. And to see this, I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew, of, of all the Gospels, speaks the most about persecution. And so let's go to Matthew. We'll start Matthew chapter 10 and verse 17. Now, while you turn there, I'm just going to do something real quick here. I like to drink my water while I'm preaching here. So Matthew 10, verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And, will, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Notice that there. Do not be anxious. The Lord is teaching here, don't be afraid of this. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they called Jesus Satan, how much more those who are not exactly and perfectly like him? Verse 26, So he says, So have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
And so we are not to fear man. We are to fear the Lord. And he goes on to say, and, and don't fear little children because the Father loves you. You are one of his children. But in our text today, Jesus teaches a radical new way to think about persecution. We're not only to not fear, but we're to see persecution actually as a blessing. Jesus calls us to rejoice in our sufferings for his sake. And with that, turn then back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12 we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he expands on it and says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as we uh, look at this text this morning, Maybe we'll do it just slightly different than, than we normally do. I, I want to pull out four observations from these verses. Not necessarily, though, in the order of the verses themselves. I just want to kind of pull out four truths, and we'll look at this, this text really under four headings, and we'll, we'll cover the whole, we'll cover all the words, all the verses as we do that. But I want to kind of break this into four things for you. And first of all, what I, I want you to see is the persecution. See the, the persecution in this text. Jesus said, again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And at the end of verse 12, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Three times in three verses, Jesus uses the word there, persecute. And the assumption in all of this is that the disciples will be persecuted. Now, verse 11 makes this really clear. Jesus says, when others revile you and persecute you. He doesn't say there, if they do those things. He says, when they do those things. And so the question is not if we will face persecution. The question really is, when will we face it? In fact, verse 10 makes it plain that a true disciple will be persecuted. Verse 10 is the last of the eight Beatitudes that we've been looking at over the last number of months. And verses 11 and 12 are really an explanation of verse 10. It's like Jesus takes that last Beatitude from verse 10, and then he further expounds on that one as he transitions into verses 13 to 16, which really speak about how we are to be in this world. And so verse 10 is the last of the eight Beatitudes. And each of these Beatitudes, each of these blessed are statements describe a true disciple of Jesus Christ, or one who is a citizen of his kingdom. Or another way to say this is each of these Beatitudes describes a true Christian or a disciple. In verse 3, Matthew 5, 3, the a disciple is poor in spirit. In verse 4, disciples are those who mourn. Verse 5, disciples are the meek. They are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6, a, a disciple is merciful. Verse 7. 
Verse 8, a disciple is pure in heart, and they are peacemakers. And disciples as well, beyond those things, are those who are persecuted. And if you wonder again how it can be that lowly, meek, merciful, and peacemaking people could be persecuted, then maybe you were tuned out during the introduction. Because that is what the, the world does to those kind of people. It's actually these very things that make Christians intolerable to the world. And it's especially that seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, that brings this persecution on. Because peacemakers, as we saw, are those who bring the message of peace to the world. But the world does not want to hear that they're not at peace with God. You know, the world won't mind if, if someone who, who comes and tells them that, that God loves them just as they are. They think, hey, that's the same as me. I, I love myself just as I am too. Uh, well, this is great. Well, me and God are on the same page then. Well, that's not our message. You know, the world will love it if somebody comes to them and declares peace, peace, when there is no peace, Jeremiah 6, 14 and 8, 11. But when someone comes along saying there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, and there is no peace between you and Almighty God unless you repent and believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, then they will begin to resent it. And the Christian is one, as we've seen, who cares enough about others and cares enough about God and His glory in this world that He will bring this message of true peace even if it will cost Him. And it's from these verses that our Lord has spoken here that the, the apostles and the disciples came to realize that persecution was inevitable. And I, I want you to just see how Peter and Paul drew from what the Lord said here. Turn with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 3 to start here. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter takes what our Lord says here and he applies it to the people that he speaks to in 1 Peter chapter 3. You can start reading there at verse 14. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, same words that our Lord's used there, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Same word as Matthew 5.10. And then Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set Him apart in your heart as, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now turn over to chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Peter says again, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God 
in that name. Paul too said something very similar from these words of our Lord. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, we'll start at verse 10. He's talking to Timothy and he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, all great things so far. But Timothy, you have also followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me indeed. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And we could just end it there, but notice especially verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly or live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the persecution that we face will vary, and it, it varies from, from age to age, from person to person, from nation to nation. It doesn't say in these texts that we will always face persecution, that there will never be a, a break from persecution, but it just says that we will be persecuted. Some believers will be killed. Some have been killed. Some will be beaten. Some will be reviled. Others insulted, slandered, mocked. Some will be slighted. The, the word persecuted there means to, to run after or to chase or to harass or to pursue somebody or, or like here, to be chased or to be harassed or to be pursued or persecuted. It's a very general word and it covers all kinds of hostility from verbal abuse to physical abuse all the way to torture and murder. Now in verse 11 then, we saw three times persecuted is used there, but verse 11, Jesus expands on this and he says, blessed are you and others revile you. Or if you have a New American Standard, it says, blessed are you when people insult you. And that word there, revile, insult, it means to reproach or to revile or to insult. It means, one dictionary said, to, to find fault in a way that demeans the other person. To find fault. People are going to find fault with you in a way that demeans you. And, and it means to heap insults or to mock or to shame. The Greek translation of, of the Old Testament used this word to translate Psalm 42 and verse 10. And in Psalm 42, 10, this is really, I believe, a prefiguring towards Christ. I, I believe this is a Psalm of David. But uh, he says there in verse 10, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And that's that same word, they, they taunt me. They, and this taunting is like a, a deadly wound in David's bones. And he says, what they say, what are they taunting him with? Well, he says, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? 
And so the world is, is taunting David, saying, where is your God? Where, where is this, this God of yours that you claim is so powerful and so mighty? And it's such an effect on David that it's like a deadly wound in his bones. Turn maybe with me to Mark chapter 15, where we see this word again, and we see some other synonym words used with it. Mark Mark chapter 15, we'll start in verse 29. <clears throat> Maybe almost the fulfillment of Psalm 42 here. Mark fifteen twenty-nine, And those who passed by derided him. This is Jesus Christ. They, they derided him. That's a different word than our text. But they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so they, they mocked him. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And there's that same word from our text. They reviled him. They taunted him. Sometimes the sinful world will mock us and deride us. They will revile us and reproach us. Sometimes they will insult us or just generally demean us. They will, because of Jesus Christ, they will, they will think low thoughts of us, right? The, the world, if they thought low thoughts of Jesus Christ, how much more will they have low thoughts of us. And then Jesus goes on in our text in verse 11 and he says also that this persecution will may involve them uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so persecuted, reviled, and now here utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now this uttering here this this is just the common word for saying the, to say and what is said is all kinds of evil against you. All kinds of evil against you. Now, most manuscripts add the word falsely. Some manuscripts, though, a few manuscripts don't have that word. And it's hard to tell if falsely was original or if it was added later by a scribe. It's really a difficult choice in, um, in textual criticism. But really, if you think about it, it really makes no difference if that word falsely is there or not. Because if these people are speaking evil, it would have to be false ad accusations against us. Otherwise, they'd just be speaking the truth. And so the fact that they're speaking all kinds of evil against you implies already that that is false accusations. And the word there, all kinds, notice that, all kinds of evil, all kinds of false claims, all kinds of misrepresentation, all kinds of lies and slander, all kinds includes whisperings or lies or accusations, all kinds of evil includes all kinds of evil speaking against us. This is the persecution. And that really, that was our first point, the, the persecution. And next, I want you to observe or, or see and I want to call this the position. So we had the persecution. Now we see, number two, the position. And what I mean by the position is that, that being persecuted, 
according to this text, is the position of the genuine disciple of Christ. Now, I've already said that, but I wanted to make it an explicit point, and I wanted to have it under its own point. I wanted to make this really clear. See, in, in verse 10, again, this is the final beatitude. Verse 10 is the final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 11 is a beatitude as well, but it's really not in with those other beatitudes. It's really just a further explanation and a transition into verses 13 to 16. But by beginning and ending these beatitudes in verse 3 and verse 10 with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus shows that all of this goes together. This is a package deal. And these things either describe you or they do not describe you. You are either poor in spirit, you are either spiritually bankrupt, or you're not spiritually bankrupt. You either mourn over sin or you don't. You are either meek or not meek, right? You either hunger and thirst for righteousness or you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. You are merciful or unmerciful. You are pure in heart. And remember what that meant? That meant to, that there was this sense of a, a single-hearted focus towards God's glory. The, the pure in heart, they were those who wanted to see God. And you're either like that or you're not like that. You're either a peacemaker, verse 9, or not a peacemaker. Now, we've recognized as we've gone through these things that we can grow in these traits and that, that none of these traits will, will be perfect in any of us, but still Jesus says that these things will identify his disciples. And if you are these things, if these things are characteristics and are true of you, then you are blessed. Remember that word blessed meant that you are in an enviable position. If those characteristics are true of you, then you are blessed. That is, you are in an enviable, enviable position. You're in a state that others should wish themselves in. Now, persecuted is one of these blessed states. But it's the only one of these blessed states that isn't directly a character trait. Right? You could, you could say, if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn, if you, if you're meek, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, but persecuted is actually something that happens to you, right? Persecuted is something that happens to you. It's something from outside of yourself. But the fact that somebody is persecuted actually says a lot about their character. And so, so think about this with me. All you need to do To avoid persecution is to conform to the world. All you need to do to avoid persecution is renounce the things in those other beatitudes, right? If, if I want to get out of being persecuted, all I got to do is conform to the world and the world is now going to be happy with me. Now they might still mock me for being a, a you know, for changing my direction, for setting out and then turning back, but still the world's persecution always ends when we conform to their system. And so if you are persecuted, it means that you hold these other beatitudes dearly. It, mean, it means that you prize these things greatly. The persecuted person who remains persecuted shows that they are more committed to the Lord than they are to their own comfort. And what we can see then is that this persecution is one who is truly meek. The persecuted one 
is truly meek. Remember, to be meek meant that you were somebody who trusted God to work in this world, in this wicked world. The meek person trusts God as they faithfully obey him in the midst of a wicked world. And so if you are persecuted, it means that you're truly meek. And it's this stand that makes this person a blessed person. They aren't blessed, again, just like all these other characteristics, they aren't blessed simply because they are persecuted so much as they're blessed because they are faithful unto persecution. They're blessed because they have this characteristic of endurance and commitment to the Lord. And so we see their position that they are a true Christian. This is what represents a true Christian, and they are blessed. And that leads us then into the third observation. And what I want you to see now is I want you to just kind of, we want to dig into this a little bit deeper, and we want to see the posture of such a one. So that we're going to call number three, the posture. And what I want you to see here is the commitment of these people. Because people who are persecuted are committed to certain things. And they're directed towards faithfulness. They have a posture of unswerving loyalty to the Lord. Now Jesus here is not talking about people who are are persecuted in, in general. You know, there's persecution that happens in this world that's separate from being a disciple of Christ. Not everyone who is persecuted is blessed... In this way, only those who are persecuted, according to verse 10, for righteousness' sake. You see that in verse 10? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And then notice what he says there, on my account. And so for righteousness' sake and on my account. Account. Now, the same Greek word lies behind both of those. And, th- and that Greek word means because of, or on account of, or for, for the sake of. And it's, so it's for the sake of righteousness in verse 10, and for the sake of me in verse 11. And so again, that word means because of, on account of, for the sake of. This persecution of the blessed person happens to them because of righteousness, and because of Jesus Christ. The Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness, as, and as they grow in it, they hold fast to it. The Christian is one who holds fast to God, whatever the cost. Because the Christian wants to do what is right in God's eye. They suffer all kinds of evil and trials in this life because they want to do what is right in God's eyes. Now, we shouldn't miss something here. And and, and between these two verses, I want you to notice that Jesus equates righteousness in verse 10 with what is done for his sake in verse 11. And so Jesus Christ, he is the righteous one. He is the standard of all righteousness. And true righteousness in this life, true righteousness in God's sight, is likeness to Jesus Christ. What we do for Christ and what we do because of Christ, that is righteousness. Now as we kind of think about this on account of righteousness and and on account of me, and we think about the posture of these people, I, I want to show you a couple of other ch- times Jesus uses this word, because of. 
Again, because of, verse 11, because of me, verse 10, because of righteousness. And, and what this is going to show us is just the commitment of a disciple. And so turn again back to Matthew chapter 10, and I want you to look at verse 17 there, 17 and 18. We see the posture in, in these verses of the true Christian, of the true disciple. Again, Jesus says, Beware of men, verse 17, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors for, and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And, and there it is there in verse 18, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, for the sake of me, on account of me. Look at verse 38 then, same chapter. Verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's that word again. Whoever loses his life for my sake. Go over to Matthew 16 and verse, starting at verse 24. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And again in Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so can I ask you then, friends, here today, can I, can I ask you, is, is this your posture? Is this your posture? Are you, are you ready to be dragged before governors for Jesus' sake? Are you taking up your cross for his sake? Is your purpose in this world his purpose? Have you lost your life for his sake? Or in other words, are you living for his sake? And if you are living for his sake, are you so committed to him that you will continue to live for him even unto death or imprisonment? A disciple of Jesus Christ, according to Jesus' teaching, a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who loves him above all. One who forsakes everything for his namesake. And this is the posture then of a true follower of Christ. One who gives up everything for him. One who sees Jesus as so worthy that nothing else compares to him, even our own suffering or discomfort. And that then leads us to the fourth observation, and we're going to call this the promise. Number four is the promise. And the promise of, of these verses, and we could go back to them again, this, the, the promise is really amazing here. This, this beatitude actually has a double blessing. Twice Jesus says, 
blessed. Verse 10, blessed. Verse 11, blessed. And so if you are persecuted for righteousness, righteousness sake, if you are persecuted for Jesus' sake, then you are doubly blessed according to our Lord. And why is this a blessing? How can being insulted, slandered, arrested, beaten, or, or any other form of persecution, how can that be a blessing? Well, it's because it shows us who we truly are. It shows us who we truly are. It shows us if we have this posture of love towards Jesus Christ or not. It shows us if we are committed to him, if we are truly committed to Christ. And if we are, we are blessed, even in the midst of persecution, because of the promise that we have in this text, verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now we've talked about the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom that God promised almost from the beginning. According to Hebrews 1 and verse 10, it's that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's that city then that Abraham looked forward to and endured his persecutions. It's the earthly kingdom with a heavenly nature over which Jesus Christ will reign. The kingdom of heaven will be the fulfillment of all God's promises to all of his people through all of the ages. It's the thousand-year reign of Christ where he is reigns as king on the earth, uh, on a renewed earth, followed by a forever reign in the new heavens and the new earth. According to Hebrews 11 and verse 16, it's that better or that heavenly country that God has prepared for us. The kingdom of heaven is the reward that Moses considered greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, Hebrews 11.26. And it's where we will see Him who is invisible. We will see God and we will dwell with Him and we will see God in Jesus Christ. And this spiritual vision of God and of Christ is our greatest reward. In Psalm 16 and verse 10, David says, really speaking about himself, but looking forward to this fulfillment of this in Christ, he says this, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so if we are one of these who is persecuted, we are blessed because we can know then that ours is the kingdom of heaven, that this kingdom belongs to us, and that our reward in heaven will be great. But beyond this, it's really difficult to say much about what this actually is, what our reward will look like. Jesus simply says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And I think the reason for this, that, that, that this is really beyond description, is that it's really beyond description for us. I, I don't think that God even could explain the joys and the, the greatness of heaven to us in this state. We will see those and enjoy those pleasures forevermore in, in, and the presence and the fullness of joy of, of seeing God and seeing Christ and being with them. We will understand this great reward when we get there. But these joys are really beyond description. Great is your reward in heaven. Or again, Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. All Paul can think to say about these rewards is that it can't be compared with the present sufferings. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, right now in this world, we see difficulties. We see trials. We see affliction. We may even see persecution. But we know that there is an unseen, incomparable, eternal weight of glory that is not even worthy of comparison with this present evil age. And the reason that we are blessed is not because we are persecuted, but because we are persecuted, we can know that we are going to inherit this great reward. And our minds are not to be fixed on this world which is passing away, but our minds are to be fixed on the world to come. And I think that's the secret of enduring persecution is that our minds are to be fixed on the world to come and not on this temporary world. And that's why Jesus says here, rejoice and be glad. Now these two words describe a deep and exuberant joy. In fact, these two words are used in Revelation 19 verse 7 to describe the joyful praise of the saints in heaven. And so we're to have the same kind of joyful praise now, even in the midst of persecution, that we have with the saints when we are in heaven in the midst of God's presence. And so we are to rejoice and be glad. This is to be our attitude now, to rejoice and be glad. And these are commands. And God commands us to do this now. Rejoice and be glad. On that day when persecution comes, we are not to sulk. We're not to be discouraged. We're not to feel sorry for ourselves. We're not to meditate on our plight or on our trials. But we are to rejoice and be glad because when we're persecuted for Christ and when we're persecuted for His righteousness, it shows that we belong to Him. It actually shows that we have been transformed by Him just like the Old Testament prophets belonged to God and endured the sufferings that they endured. And they did it looking to the city and to that kingdom that is to come. And when we are persecuted like this, it shows that our reward in heaven is great and that we truly belong to that heavenly kingdom. Now, I want to take you just to show you that this is, a, this is a real thing, and this can actually be our state. Look at, Ma- uh, sorry, look at Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5, maybe I'll start at verse 33. When they heard this, now what did they hear? The, the, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the council, they heard maybe verse 29, uh, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
They heard that, that, that Jesus was raised, verse 30, that, that you killed him by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so Peter and John are just preaching the gospel to those who have arrested them. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And in verse 40, we can skip down to there. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Now they beat them there. That word signifies that and just the context and the people who did this and the situation there, this is the 39 lashes that the Jews would give as a punishment. 39, it was called 40 minus 1 because they thought if they lashed somebody 40 times, that would probably kill them. And so this is kind of one less than a killing, beating, and whipping that the apostles received. But look at how they respond. did. Look at how they responded. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. With the wounds still fresh on their backs, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And that is how great our Savior is, that He is worthy of whatever has to come. And so we've seen the persecution. We've seen the position that those who are thus persecuted are in this, this blessed position because it shows that they truly belong to Jesus Christ, that they are true disciples of His that they are those who have the posture of a truly regenerated person, that they are those who rejoice and, and, and are glad in the midst of persecution because they know that Christ is worthy. And the promise to such a one is that they will, we will receive a great reward in heaven. That we are in line with the prophets who were persecuted before us. That we were in line with all of God's people through all of the ages. And so, brothers and sisters, persecution, if it comes, we're not to seek it. We're not to to go out and, and try to bring it on ourselves. But in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, when persecution comes, all it can really do for us is hurt our physical, temporary bodies and build a great reward for us in our eternal dwelling in heaven. All persecution can do for us is really show us that our reward in heaven is going to be great. And so, brothers and sisters, let's be faithful and committed to Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you've joined us this morning and you have maybe seen this morning that you aren't a true disciple of Jesus Christ, that you don't have this posture of absolute love for him, then I invite you this morning and God invites you to repent and turn from your sin and see the greatness of Jesus Christ and come to him and he will forgive your sins, he will cleanse you and he will transform you so that you can have this type of response in the midst of persecution and suffering. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for our time. And we thank you for the amazing and remarkable transformation of 
a vision that you give us, that we as your people, we are to look at this world entirely different than we used to look at it. We're to look at this world entirely different than the world looks at it. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that if persecution comes and as persecution comes, that you will help us to be like you called us to in this text, that you will help us to rejoice, that you will help us to be glad, that you will help us to see the great reward that we have in heaven. And we even pray for ourselves right now, Lord, in the, according to the words of Colossians chapter 1, that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so, Lord, we ask you to do that, that you might be glorified through us because you are worthy of all our glory. And we pray now even that you would help us to arise, that you would make our heads like flint and that you would give us this faithful commitment to Jesus Christ that we need to stand for you in the midst of this wicked world. We pray that we would arise and put our armor on and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.